Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. I want to look at and just give an overview because chapter 2, in fact, let's just read the first three verses because I'm, I'm hoping to get through those first three verses of chapter 2. It says, and I'm, I'm reading from the King James tonight because that's the first Bible I grabbed. It says, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation or our lifestyle in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. He immediately, I mean, if you think about how he ended chapter 1 with us being his body and, and all the things that Jesus has brought to us, and then immediately jumps into... Well, he did make us alive. That's what it means when the King James says, and you he hath quickened. New King James and most of the modern translations says, and you he made alive. That's what King James, you have, he hath quickened. That's what it means. But looking back at chapter 1, because he's going to start putting the rubber to the road, all of the, the first three chapters are a lot of theology, a lot of who you are in Christ, what Christ has given us, uh, positional truths. These are all things that are facts, but they may not actually be working in your life unless you're believing for them. But just having an overview of, 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 of um, chapter 1, verse 10 kind of sums up chapter 1, when you just pull it out by itself, it's, um, it reads a little strange. But it says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. That's kind of the theme of all of this. Jesus, this is the dispensation of the fullness of times. Things are wrapping up. And it may I say that it could be another hundred years, another thousand years. I don't know. I don't think it is, will be, but I'm quite capable of missing the mark on that. But whenever Jesus returns, all through the church age, this is the big thing that he's trying to do. He's gathering together all of the people, despite, no matter what their ethnic background, no matter whether they're Jew or Gentile, black, white, smart, you know, ignorant, it doesn't matter. He wants everyone, and he's bringing them all together, not only the ones that are here on earth, but also the believers, for us, past believers, that are in heaven. We're all part of the same family. And the great part about it, if you look up at, at um, 
verse 3 through 6 of verse 1, or chapter 1. This is God's plan, and it's his activity. Um, he says in, in, at the end of verse 3, Christ, the, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. It's already ours. He chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame. And he predestined us to adoption because it was his will. It's, this is all entirely due to God's grace and God's love for us and God's mercy towards us and his compassion on us. Um, verse 6 says that it's to the praise of the glory of his grace where he, because he made us accepted in the blood. It really doesn't have anything to do with us. It's his grace that did it because he chose to do it this way. It's not anything that man thought up. And the interesting thing is the, the word there, grace, the Greek word is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, where, uh, or charis, I guess is how you pronounce it. It's where we get our English word charisma. Um, it's a gracefulness. That word occurs 12 times in Ephesians. The, other than Romans, and Romans has, has it 21 times, but Romans has 16 chapters rather than six. Um, this grace occurs by far more in Ephesians. It really is the, the theme of, of chapter one and the theme of, of, of all of Ephesians is grace, Christ and grace. Excuse me. But all of this grace, the salvation, the blessings, all of its center in Christ. And I, I missed this the first time, but I saw this when I was going back and reading today. In the first 14 verses of chapter 1, Jesus, or, or, or the word Christ, is referred to 15 times in 14 verses. That's, that's quite incredible. Especially when you think that God doesn't repeat things because he's stuttering. He repeats things for emphasis. And that tells me that the whole emphasis of Ephesians is Christ and his grace. Now the blessings, they're, we're pardoned. Uh, we've been forgiven. We've been adopted. We're his sons. We're um, heirs, joint heirs with Christ. We have this inheritance, and it's all sealed by the Holy Spirit. And that sealing means it's ours. It's stamped. And the enemy will tell you, the devil will tell you, ah, it's not yours. You don't deserve it. But there's nothing he can do about it. Once it's sealed, once it's stamped, that's it. But it all comes through... Christ. Paul's very clear, especially if you go looking um, through here. He tells us through all of this that the way you start this is you start out when you want to get Christ-centered. You start out by looking at Jesus, not at yourself. 
I mean, let's face it, we're all the best Christian in the world. They're still conscious of your weakness, your sinfulness. We see all of life's difficulties. We see all of the opposition that's out there. Um, we see an entire world organized by sin. And we're standing here thinking, yeah, I don't know that I can do what God's called me to do. But Jesus says, quit looking at that. Start looking at me. In um, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, he said, um, Therefore, seeing also we are encompassed, or we are compassed about, with so great a cloud of witnesses. There, it's almost like if you've ever been in <clears throat> some of these big hotels that have the big huge atriums and all of the rooms, um, the doors go out to a little balcony and you look down from whatever floor you're on, it's just all open in the middle. Well, that's how I see us. There's a big atrium and heaven the, the railing in heaven, all the saints are just circling and on that rail, watching what we're doing here. He said, because of that, because we've got, and, and he's also referring back to Hebrews 11, where he gave us all of these heroes of the faith. He said, because all of these people who walk this stuff out are watching us, we need to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And I look at it, the sin that easily besets us is a lack of patience. Primarily that's what he's called. But let's face it, we all, when you, you know, things get bad and you think, you just determine, I'm going to do this right. And you start working real hard at it. And then it's not a... It's almost like um, New Year's resolutions. Your intentions are good, but I don't know about you, but most of my resolutions are gone by January 15th, if I make it that long. Well, that's because we have need of patience. We have need of that endurance to keep doing what's right. But in verse 2, he tells us how to do it. Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one that will start the work in you, and he's the one that will bring it to pass. That's what Paul's trying to say here in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. We need to get our eyes off of ourselves and off of all of our difficulty, and we need to look at Jesus and what he's provided for us. In fact, if we go back to Ephesians 1, he... He really kind of summed this up in his prayer in verse 19. And he talks about the riches of the glory of the inheritance that we have in verse 18. But then in verse 19, he says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us, word? It's directed directly at us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. And then he goes on and finishes that. The working of the, the mighty power that was worked is the power that God used to raise Christ out of the grave. That power is, is, is being directed towards us to be able to walk in the riches of his inheritance. 
you have one thing after another thing after another thing in your body, it'll wear you out mentally, emotionally. Well, that's why we, keep, we need to keep looking to Jesus because he has that power working on our behalf. And then the, the, he ended with probably the, the best part of it. And this is, I'm going to read how Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, talking about we are his body, the last, last verse, verse 23. He says, we are not isolated individuals loosely attached to a church. We're not vaguely related to Christ. No, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We are, and this is my thoughts, we, we are so attached to his body that we are in him, and even more importantly, he is in us. That one, you know, I, I have a hard time sometimes thinking that I'm in, I'm in Christ, or Christ, yeah, I'm in Christ, Especially in, we're going to see in chapter 2, he seated us with him in heavenly places. That seems, I, I, I really do understand that and I can walk with that most of the time. But that's a pretty fantastic promise. It's a pretty fantastic statement that positionally I'm seated with him. But the one that really just my mind can't wrap itself around is when I start thinking and meditating that Christ is in me, that he actually, the God of the entire universe, lives inside of me. That, I just, I believe it, I accept it, and I walk in it most of the time. But mentally, I, it, my, my brain does twist, it twists my brain in a pretzel when I try to think about that one. Now, with all that in mind, we come to chapter 2. And chapter 2, he's going to start um, giving us some previews, or not, not previews, but he's going to, to say, okay, if all of this is ours, then what does that mean? When we get to chapter 4, he's really going to say, now, if all of this is true, this is how you need to live. But he's going to start at least briefly down that road. And to begin with, he's going to deal with two huge difficulties. That if all of chapter 1 is true, then very first difficulty, what about sin? How, is, how can that be true if sin exists? And I'm a sinner. Well, he does it first and foremost by giving us the facts. I mean, it's the first, what, five words. And you he made alive. Remember, he ended chapter one with all of the power that's working in, in you right now, that's bringing your inheritance, is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. So if that power is working in me, then he says, you're part of that too. You he made alive, who were dead. I love that, it's past tense. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. He said, yeah, sin is a problem. 
But it was a problem that Jesus dealt with by dying, going to the grave, and God resurrecting him. Now, it's interesting. He says, we were dead an hour, meaning they were, we owned it. In our trespasses and our sins. He uses two different words there. For trespasses, he uses the, the Greek word uh, peripatoma, which para means um, to come alongside. We have paraclete um, means a helper that comes on, someone that comes alongside to help, which is the word for the Holy Spirit. He is our paraclete. But this means you, you come alongside something and then you fall down. It literally means to slip or to blunder. But when he uses the word there, sins, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He uses the word uh, haramatia, which is probably the word that's translated sins the most in all of the New Testament. And quite literally, it means to miss the mark. It's a shooting uh, word. Whether you're shooting a bow and arrow, throwing a knife, shooting a gun, it means the target's there and you can't hit it. I just watched, because this past weekend was Memorial Day weekend, I got to watch again to my wife's utter amazement that I would watch it for the probably the thousandth time. But I watched Sar Sergeant York, one of my absolute favorite wartime movies. Uh, that man was incredible, Sergeant York. But he, he grew up in the hills of Tennessee. He shot a long rifle, a muzzle-loading rifle. Um, but he was a great shot. And in the movie, they hand him this, um, um, I think it was a uh, Springfield, 1906 Springfield rifle. And he'd never seen a rifle like this. It was, <laughs> it was modern equipment compared to a muzzle-loading rifle. And they threw a target up, and he shot at it, and they waved the flag and said he missed the entire target. And he said, I just don't see how in the world I could miss that target. And so they asked for a reread, and he was in the bullseye. And they gave him another six shots, and he put them all in there, and they brought it in, and every one of them was in the bullseye. But they were grouped really tightly down to the left-hand corner, and he said, I think that gun shoots a mite to the left. And, I mean, it just, that's part of the reason he was able to do what he did in, in combat, because he was a great shot. But he still couldn't put it right in the middle every time, as good a shot as he was. And for most of us, when we live life, that's what we're aiming for, and over here somewhere is where we end up hitting. That's part of the sin nature that we were born into. And, and basically the way I see this, the sins that we have missing the mark is our sinful nature. It's kind of like if you've, if you've ever known somebody that has a, muscu a muscular disability. If you know somebody that has one of these diseases um, or someone that's had a stroke, they're quite clumsy. They don't have great balance because of their clumsiness, because of the disability, they tend to slip and fall a lot. Well, we were born in sin, 
our natural tendency is to be clumsy towards doing right. And so we, told, we slip and fall a lot. That's what we were born into. But the great part is, he said before, you know, before he gets to what was, was our problem, you he made alive. He made us alive despite the fact that we fell all the time because we didn't have the ability not to fall. We just don't, in our natural selves, in our fallen nature, we did not have the possibility of not sinning. It's kind of like, um, I, I've, I've used this example, I don't know of anybody that's ever had children that they had to teach their children to lie or had to teach their children to be rebellious. I mean, you get a two-year-old, actually, you don't have to get to be two years old. As um, soon as they start crawling, they're going to find an a electrical plug, some electrical outlet somewhere in the wall. And they're going to want to go up and start pulling on those cords just to see. They're just curious. They want to see what happens. And you tell them no, and you can just see the gears grinded in their that little brain. They'll turn around and they'll look at you like, you said no. But I'm curious. And they'll turn around and grab it, despite the fact that you said no. And you don't have to teach that to them. They just have a natural rebellion inside their little bodies. It's called the sin nature. And unfortunately, sometimes we, you know, if we never, well, if you never get saved, you never turn your life over to Christ, that dominates you forever. And for most people, and this is kind of the problem, most people don't have a problem looking at bank robbers or murderers or um, people that are, you know, perverts. They don't have a problem in, at looking at them and saying, yeah, they're sinners. But if you leave a, lead a fairly respectable life, you don't drink, smoke, cuss, run around, harm people, I can't tell you the number of people I've ever talked about the Lord, and it's almost universal. Yeah, but I never robbed a bank. <laughs> well, that's great, but that doesn't mean that you didn't want to. I mean, it's in, and I'm not saying that people want to rob the bank, but when you're de if you're really desperate for money, sometimes you walk into a bank, especially if they have that vault open and you can see fifty to a hundred thousand dollars sitting back there, and it's only twenty feet. It's like, wow, it just really, I wouldn't have to run hard to get back there and get out of here before they could stop me. Well, what stops you? Well, one of two things, either fear of getting caught or you're just not a thief. Sin will do that to you. It just, you know, you can put a temptation out there. You just can't resist it because you, your sin nature really wants it and it's going to go after it. The great part is that's how we were, but now we've been made alive. That's no longer the case with us. God dealt with that very first difficulty. Our sin nature was broken through Christ. The, the, the second part, verse 2, when we were doing that, we didn't just wander around and do things haphazardly. 
He says, um, let me just read it with verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. The reason we, we walked according to the course of the world, we were one of those sons of, sons of disobedience. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air. Satan was our father. He was our God. Whether we acknowledged it or not, it didn't matter. I mean, there were times when I didn't really like my dad. In fact, there were a lot of times I didn't like my dad, especially when I was a teenager. But it didn't matter whether I liked him or not. It didn't matter even if I claimed him. I mean, I can remember when, when I was a parent and the first time it happened, it was a little disconcerting, but we took our kids to the mall and our kids didn't want to be seen with us. They wanted to walk ahead or behind. They didn't want anybody to know that's our mom and dad because we weren't cool. And it was like, wow, I've been disowned. Well, we could have disowned Satan, but we were still his. But there was a course. There was a path that was determined for us. And it was determined by Satan. And I loved, I don't know where this came from. One of the books I read, this was an old, used to be an old saying, um, it says, if you sow an act, you'll reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you'll reap character. If you sow character, you will uh, reap a destiny. Well, part of what we were doing was we were walking this course. And after you walk it a while and you repeat it and you repeat it, um, you lose your sensitivity to doing those activities. I'll never forget the first time I ever watched, and we went to a theater to watch it, and Gina and I don't go to theaters very often because we're both of us are too cheap to spend you know, $35 just for two of us to see a movie. We'll wait till it comes out on video or go to the, well, even the dollar shows now $2. But um, the first time I went to see Saving Private Ryan, I wanted to see it really bad. Gina doesn't like war movies, but she consented to go with me. Well, I made it through pretty well, but early in this, in those scenes, um, there, were, there were four brothers, I think. Three of them got killed, one in the, in the Pacific, and then two of them got killed um, associated with D-Day. And it showed... Um, a scene where they had this military car driving up this gravel road to this house and this mother standing in the in the window and they're coming to tell her my your three sons are three of your four sons are dead and um, it brought me back it wasn't my mom but it was my dad and my my little brother and I that were home and somebody from our little town because Nothing can happen in our small town without everybody knowing it. But they called, and, and the military chaplain and a captain stopped in our town to find out where we lived because we were out in the country. They didn't have uh, Google Maps, and, and they didn't even have a map of the county roads. You just had to go by landmarks. And they stopped and asked directions, and they gave them directions how to get to our farm. And we're sitting there, and we can see this military vehicle driving up our gravel road and coming up our driveway. And 
we all knew this means Dennis is dead. He's in Vietnam and he ain't coming back. Because they don't, they'll notify you if you're wounded or missing, you just get notification back then. But if they're dead, they show up on your doorstep. And when I saw that in, in that movie, Saving Private Ryan, I, it, I mean, something broke in me. And I hadn't even thought about my brother for years. But I started crying. I mean, I wasn't just crying. I was blowing snot. I was, I mean, people around us were looking at me thinking, my God, what's going on with this guy? I just, I could not control it. And I mean, I was a, I was a mess by the time that movie, I didn't, I hardly saw the rest of the movie just because of that one scene. Because even though the mom, my mom wasn't home, it broke my mother. It really did. She was never the same after that happened. My point is, and I was talking about, is getting desensitized to things. I just watched Saving Private Ryan on TV, I don't know, two or three weeks ago. I've probably seen it ten times. The second time I saw it was on TV, and it bothered me a, a little bit. I teared up a little bit. Third time I saw it, I felt a little something, but I didn't tear up. And every time I've watched it, it's bothered me less and less. Now I watch it, I don't even think anything of it. It's just I got, I got desensitized to it. That's what sin does to us. That's what that, that pattern, sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Sin will so ingrain those steps that they just become second nature and you don't even think about what you're doing. It's just how I live. And I do that. And, and after you've been a Christian for a while, if you go out and you, you get with people that are still out in the world, it's almost shocking when you realize, I used to do that, and now I look at it, and it is shocking to me that people could live this way because I don't even think about living that way anymore. And I don't hang around with a lot of people that do. And you realize how far you've come. But it works the other way, too. It works the way, that way towards righteousness. The first time you ever set your heart to pray for somebody that's hurt you, that's despitefully used you, oh, man, it's hard. <laughs> it's, you just, your flesh will rise up and your mind will rise up. And it's like, Lord, bless them and then kill them and send them to hell. Oh, sorry, Lord. And you have to back up and you have to do it again. But as you practice that, it gets easier and it gets you get better at it until it becomes a habit. And that habit actually will build character in you and that character will give you a destiny. The, the thing that I saw and, and were you in the military? Yes. What were you? What branch? Marine Corps. Marine Corps. Well, you probably both remember this. Um, because Army Infantry does the same thing. Actually, I guess most of the basic training at least does a little bit, other than maybe the Air Force, because I think theirs is only three or four weeks, and it's more like going to a country club. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I enlisted in the Air Force. I just didn't. Oh, it's not. I'm not going to go there. Anyway. One of the things you'll remember this from basic is, you know, they literally, they do it through repetition. They will have you fix bayonets, even though nobody uses bayonets. I mean, if you're using bayonets, 
you know things are pretty pretty hairy because it's just uh, they don't use them they still issue them i don't even know if the new m16s um or m4s have an attachment for a bayonet i know they're given you're given a, a a field knife but i don't think you can actually attach it to your weapon anymore but they will do that in basic and they'll have you stab the little you know used to be either a bale of hay now they have a thing up there a dummy and 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 you'll charge and yell kill and you do it over and over and over again but you do that because for the military they know it's hard to train a human being to shoot and kill another human being everything in us revolts at that idea but if they through repetition they can desensitize you and pretty much every soldier I've ever talked to that was in combat and actually, you know, wasn't in, there are forms of combat where you're shooting, but you don't really see your enemy. They're out there and you're just lobbing ordnance at them. But then there's the times when it's up close and personal. When it gets up close and personal, a lot of people have problems with that afterwards. But I know in World War II, um, especially units that stayed on the front lines, it almost became second nature. You became numb to it. You could shoot an enemy soldier and you just didn't, it didn't affect you anymore. That's what sin does. And to be honest with you, that's, that's really the frightening thing about in our society today, about violence in movies and especially violence in video games. I mean, if you think of the number of times kids sit in front of a video game and shoot a human target that's building pathways in their brains it's part of the reason that you know you have younger kids in gangs where they tell them you know you go out and kill so-and-so it's to them it's like a video game and they don't have a problem pulling the trigger now they may pull the trigger and suddenly realize oh my lord what have i done but i know kids that i had in school we had a student it's probably been five or six years ago he was 18 years old, stole some marijuana from, from uh, the local drug dealers, and then was dumb enough to put it on Facebook that they were going to sign, or not Instagram. Well, the guy showed up and wanted his dope back. And this kid, 18 years old, pulled out a 9 There were two guys that came after him. He pulled out a 9 millimeter, shot twice, and put a bullet in each man's heart, first shot. They, I mean, they didn't live 30 seconds after he shot him. They went down. And he took off, and he's, he's never going to come out of jail. They put him in jail, and he has no possibility of parole ever. And he's 18 years old, and he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. But he didn't even blink an eye shooting those guys. How do you do that? Well, I knew him. I don't think he was a sociopath. Sociopaths can do that. They don't have a conscience. But I think more than, more than that, it was he had done it so many times on games, he didn't think it, it, it. To him, it was just carrying out that instinctive motion that he had done hundreds of thousands of times. Sin will do that to us. Now, verse 3. We're going to close with this one because it's almost time. Verse 3 says, um, well, let me go back and read all three of them together. Verse 1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, 
I like that past tense again. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. I find it interesting there that he says, first of all, at the end, because you have to keep in mind, Paul always describes humans one of two ways. He either describes us as a two-part being, an inward man and an outward man, or a three-part being where we are body, spirit, soul, and body, where our spirit is, is the part of us that was born again. Our soul is our mind, will, and our emotions, and our bodies our fleshly body when we die it's what stays behind here he says we were by nature children of wrath that's talking about our human spirit before we were got born again our nature was just like satan's he was our father our father we were by by our nature we were just like everybody else that was born into the world we were children of wrath but our behavior was governed by the lusts or the strong desires of our flesh because our flesh was, those desires were, we were fulfilling the desires of that flesh and of our mind. I find it interesting that even though we were children of wrath, our nature was the same as Satan's, it was fallen. He only operated through our flesh and our minds. He didn't try to operate through our spirits. God, on the other hand, when we are born again, he joins himself with our spirit. And he tells us, he said it in, in Romans 12, 2, I want, you to be re, I want you to renew your mind. He puts it on us to change the way we think. Because if he can change the way we think, he can change the way we behave. Now, the problem is, that's where we, that's what we, I've been talking about on Sunday mornings. That's where our biggest warfare is. Can we make our minds see things differently than we did before we were born again? And if I find a, a, a weakness or a, a um, problem in the church in general, the American church, because I don't know too many other churches because I'm an American it's that the vast majority of Christians that I know they live just like their unsaved neighbors they live by their wits they they work hard nothing wrong with hard work um, hard work will get you ahead eventually um, Proverbs says you know there's profit in all work but if you're not believing God to get blessed then you're only going to attain what your talents and your efforts can do. You get involved, get God involved in it, and start exercising your faith in what he's going to bless you. You can do the same work, and suddenly you get farther than you would. But most people never change the way they think. They still see the world as they did before they got born again, and therefore... 
they live at the whim, at the whims of the world. That's why most people, even Christians, or especially Christians, comes flu season, I'm gonna get the flu. Well, I've had the flu. Well, I haven't had the flu for 30 years, but. There was a time when Gina and I got it, when we first got a revelation that God wanted to heal, that we, we got just as sick as we ever had. But we started noticing, we would, every time that would happen, we would start believing God to be healed. And we'd pray it over our kids too. And we would go ahead and take our kids to the doctor and we'd go to the doctor if we needed to. But we noticed over time that when we would get sick, we wouldn't get as sick and it didn't last as long. Until eventually, a lot of the things, they just didn't come in anymore. We just noticed things, it didn't happen. Doesn't mean that, you know, we never have tests. I mean, you know, a year and five months ago, Gina dropped dead. That's a little bit of a test of illness, <laughs> you know, <laughs> slight one, uh, but, it was amazing. I probably didn't believe, I, I didn't, from, from my standpoint, I didn't exercise any more faith then than I did when other things hit her. I was probably more cognizant of the fact that I cannot let up for a second because I knew the consequences if I gave up. She was going to die. It took us months before we saw any real evidence that it was, you know, she's healed today. I mean, she, no heart damage, no brain damage. I mean, she was on the floor of that bathroom for 30 minutes doing CPR. Not many, money, not many people ever survived that, let alone survive it without heart damage or brain damage. Almost everybody that comes through it's going to have a lot of damage, and she's got none. And I mean, I literally, I can remember the, um, the lady that was, because the first two nights she was there, first 72 hours, they had her in a coma, self, in, you know, an induced coma and lowered her body temperature. And they had her, she was on um, a um, respirator breathing for her because they had her totally paralyzed. And the respiratory therapist that was there the first two nights uh, after Gina, was off the respirator and up and, you know, talking two or three days later, peeked your head in and just kind of stared at her for a second. And finally I said, do you need something? And she was kind of sheepy. She said, I'm sorry, I probably should have said something. She said, I was your respiratory therapist the first two nights you are here. She said, I just wanted to come see the miracle. And we looked at her and said, what do you mean? She said, oh, everybody in the hospital is talking about this one. Because it's a miracle that you're alive. And not only you're alive, but you're up and you're talking. And you don't seem to really have any problems. And believe me, this is not the normal end of what we see the way you came in. And uh, in fact, I remember when, because um, she fell so hard in the bathroom when she passed out, that they got her on the respirator in the ER and they said... Um, but they got her, they did a bunch of stuff, and they said, we've got to take her and do an MRI on her brain to make sure she doesn't have a brain bleed before we go to the cath lab and because we've got to give her blood thinners to do the, put the stent in. 
And they said, and if she has a brain bleed, if she, you know, ruptured something, we can't do anything. And um, after they brought her out of the out of the MRI, going to the cath lab, they said, if you wait right here, they'll bring her by, and you can see her for a second. Well, she was completely unconscious, and I just grabbed her, bent down, and and gave her a kiss, and and I just spoke into her ear, and I said. It's not your day to die. You don't have my permission to die. You are not going to die today. And that was it. I mean, 30 seconds, I was done. I said, okay. And the nurse looked at me. She says, you can take a little longer if you want to. And I said, nope. She needs to go in there. She needs that stent more than I need to, you know, talk to her. I've said everything I need to say. And I I know that nurse kind of looked at me like, wow, you are one hard-hearted dude. <laughs> well, I wasn't being hard-hearted. I just knew I had no power to heal her. I just was speaking what God told me. This is not her day to die. So I, 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 I told her that. I'm done. Go do your job. You know, I've done everything I can do spiritually. You go do, you know, stick that piece of steel in her heart and get her blood flowing. And then she about scared her poor cardiologist to death. Because as soon as he put the first stent in, he, they, it blocked all the blood to the back of her heart, which was the only part of her heart that was working. And the, he almost lost her right there. And, man, he had to pull that, that whole big long tube, set another one in, and, there, and she's got a big kink in her aorta, which was odd. And he had to get that through there and then get that up in her heart and get it into the right artery and open that artery up before she died. He said, first time we took her to back to see him, he said, I usually don't recognize the faces of my patients because all I see is, is um, the screen. I see your heart and an x-ray. He said, I'll never forget you. <laughs> he said, you scared me so bad. <laughs> he said, I was praying like a mad fiend in that. And I said, well, I'm glad you were because we were outside. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.